0: We'll go with the older technology. Works a little better. So here we are on the afternoon of the first full day of the creativity retreat. And I am always just so inspired to be here. It's just... uh, tremendous uh, it's like there's a uh, the combustion of creativity is going on in all of you and I as teachers we get to just warm our hands by the fire it's really inspiring and it's inspiring for me as a writer I think Anna mentioned the first night that in addition to being a practitioner of yoga and meditation I'm a practitioner of writing as well And I've written a few different books, a travel book and a a novel and a yoga and meditation book. And I'm in the final stretches, kind of on deadline on another book right now. And so it's really the perfect time to be on a retreat like this. Because there can be the stage when there's a deadline that it really starts to feel like work. And it starts to feel like a product And that's really an illusion and that's the illusion that gets punctured on the creativity retreat where it just becomes this incredible reminder that what we're doing here is a process. And in a sense, the things that come out of the process are a byproduct. They're beautiful, but they aren't the most beautiful part. And to kind of immerse in this field at this particular time, is really wonderful, this emphasis on the journey, just as we did in the yoga, moving through the body, not with the idea of coming to a particular shape or a particular pose, but with this incredible interest in the journey and with the spirit of play and creativity and aliveness, exploration. And so this retreat is, is quite unusual in the way it highlights this dimension of practice really, I think the only retreat that I've been on here that has this much feeling of play in it is the family retreat, which I used to come on for years when my son was younger. And when you came on the family retreat, you came walking up the hill, still this way, I believe. And the first thing you see are chalk paintings and kids and grown-ups drawing all over the pathway here. And then you come up to the courtyard and there are People singing songs and shaking shakers and dancing and singing songs about the Buddha and the Four Noble Truths. And you know, if you haven't lived till you've heard a country music song about suffering and, and <laughs> Dharma. Uh, and then there's Water World, and there are people blowing bubbles all over the place, mainly smaller people. And you know, there's a fire with s'mores, and uh, there's an art tent where you can go at any time and break and color and so it was wonderful coming here with my son and then he he really thought that now he got what a meditation retreat was like and I would go on meditation retreats without him and he would say well are you going to go to the art tent and I would have to tell him that on most of the retreats I went on there was not an art tent and he would be kind of puzzled like why wouldn't there be an art tent on a meditation retreat So um, we can get this idea in in our practice that these things are separate. Uh, But they really, as we experience on this retreat, are uh, their pathways in. The arts are doorways to awakening, particularly when they're held that way and practiced in that way. And I'm going to talk a little this afternoon about the similarities in these practices of yoga and meditation and painting and writing, and by extension, the rest of the arts as well, and the things that kind of hold them together, the common threads that run through them all, even though, of course, they are quite different paths, each in their own right, and they are not identical to one another, but there are these themes that hold them together, and so I'd like to talk about that today, and talk about it in the light of this overarching thing that they all hold in common, which is that our lives matter. Our human lives matter. And they matter not just in the abstract, but they matter in the specificity of our life. They're worth paying attention to. The ordinary moments, the... Uh, the fact of being incarnated in a human body with human emotions and human dramas and, and human blood and bones, that these are all things that we can pay attention to and that they can wake us up and wake us into a larger understanding of who we are that includes them as well as transcends them. And that the way into all of that and the way into that understanding and that relationship with our lives is by the simple act of paying attention. Here's a quote from Jane Hirschfield. She's a wonderful uh, Zen student and, and poet. She has a book called The Heart of Haiku about the 17th century poet Basho, who was also a Zen monk. And Jane Hirschfield writes, In his poems and in his teachings of other poets, Basho set forth a simple, deeply useful reminder, that if you see for yourself, hear for yourself, and enter deeply enough into this seeing and hearing, all things will speak with and through you. Zen is less the study of doctrine than a set of tools for discovering what can be known when the world is looked at with open eyes. So that's what we're doing here. We're cultivating this art of looking at the world with open eyes. And so I'd like to talk about this today kind of through the lens of one of the central Buddhist teachings, which is the lens of the four foundations of mindfulness. And this is a teaching from the Buddha about the four areas of our life, the four arenas of human existence. It's sometimes called the four establishments of of mindfulness, because it's these four different areas where we can pay attention, where we can cultivate this art of mindfulness, of being present, of looking with open eyes. And by looking at these areas, we can bring about a deeper understanding of our lives and of what it is to be human. We can bring about freedom. We can bring about an understanding that relieves us from uh, the suffering that we cause for ourselves, the ways that we get tangled in knots. And so these are areas that we explore through our meditation practice and we explore through our yoga practice, but that we also explore through our art. And so I'm going to talk about them, not so much in the traditional medit- meditative sense, but in terms of how they really uh, are explored through our art and how they help how they help illuminate and enrich our art. And so the first of these areas that we can pay attention to, and many of you know this because you've been on many retreats, is the whole arena of the body. And by extension, the physical world itself, so that there's our own body paying attention internally to our own body, but there's also the body of the world. And the Buddha gave very explicit and wonderful instructions on how to pay attention to the body. And he gave all of these examples, like you know, pay attention to the body the way a farmer pays attention, you know, goes through a, a bag of grain and looks at every single grain and knows this is a grain of barley and this is a grain of rice and this is a lentil and this is a mung bean. You pay attention with this degree of specificity. Now it's worth noting, especially perhaps for the writers, that the Buddha was a great user of metaphor. And so this was a metaphor that spoke to just the common realities of life then. This wasn't an exotic one at that time. This was something that you did and saw all the time. He also talked about paying attention to your body the way a butcher carves up a cow and just knows all the different pieces. So this very ordinary metaphor, I mean, we might, in our day, a similar thing might be, you know, you pay attention to your body the way you sort your laundry. You know, this is socks, this is a white t-shirt, this is a dark pair of jeans. It was that ordinary. And so I think the very ordinariness of the metaphor speaks to this valuing of the ordinariness of our human life. We're paying attention through the lens of our art just to the basics, and you know that as writers, you speak in specifics and it's more powerful. You don't speak in generalities of, oh, a person was sitting under a tree, they were a nice person and it was a nice tree. You bring it to life through the detail. It was an oak and it was a brown oak and it had acorns and and the person was bent and they were eating a tuna sandwich. You know, you fill out the detail, the ordinary detail in this intimate, sensual way. Because again, the details of our life matter. We pay attention to the specificity. And through the specificity, we, we find a way to the universal. So you care about that person sitting under the tree, eating the tuna sandwich, even if you don't like tuna sandwiches. But there's something in that specificity in which we can find our shared humanity. And so just an example of that kind of specificity in a poem here. One of the things I love about the creativity retreat is I get to read a lot of poems in the Dharma talk. So this is a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. And you can notice the ordinary physical detail in this poem. The poem is called Daily. And she writes, these shriveled seeds we plant, corn kernel, dried bean poke into loosened soil, cover over with measured fingertips. These t-shirts we fold into perfect white squares. These tortillas we slice and fry to crisp strips. This rich egg scrambled in a gray clay bowl. This bed whose covers I straighten, smoothing edges till blue quilt fits brown blanket and nothing hangs out. This envelope I address so the name balances like a cloud in the center of sky. This page I type and retype. This table I dust till the scarred wood shines. This bundle of clothes I wash and hang and wash again. Like flags we share, a country so close no one needs to name it. The days are nouns, touch them. The hands are churches that worship the world. So we pay attention in our art, whether we're naming things in our writing or whether we're painting. And again, it's, you, know, you may be painting something extraordinary that's never been seen on this earth before, but we're still using the ordinary colors of human existence, blues and reds and turquoise and emerald. There's no other palette to use than the palette that exhibits itself through this incredible physical world. And everything we bring to life in this way and pay attention to begins to shine. So you can go and you can look at examples of paintings and it will often be a painting of something quite ordinary, a group of people having a picnic on the grass or a flower like those Giorgio O'Keeffe flowers, you know, but blown up so big that you see every detail of it. We went, um, my family and I went recently to the Museum of Modern Art, and one of the sculptures there was this enormous apple core, just a nod on apple core blown up huge. And you sit and you look at this apple core like you've never seen it before. The ordinary made extraordinary by the attention that we pay to it. And so that's what we're doing in the yoga as well. You felt that this afternoon. You know, my shoulder. I know my shoulder, right? I've lived in this shoulder how many years? And yet you go inside, you start to move, you pay attention, and it illuminates itself. It reveals itself. We realize we didn't know that shoulder before until we paid attention to it. And so when we pay attention and do our art in this way, we're cultivating a way of being that then we can bring to everything. Like, oh, my child. I had an idea of my child, but here's my living child. Here's my partner. Here's my friend. Here's my work that I'm doing. Here's this cake that I'm baking. It's fresh. It's mysterious. It's revealing itself. And so by paying attention in this way to the details of our ordinary physical world, a kind of meaning starts to shimmer through them. This is another quote. This is from an author called Bonnie Friedman, writing past dark. She says, meaning does not have to be injected into a story like juice injected into a cooked turkey. Things themselves are translucent with meaning, like paper translucent from grease. Meaning is held in the web of things, like honey held in a comb, or a bundle of the sun's radiant energy held in the green of chlorophyll. So you never need to worry that what you're painting or what you're writing about is too ordinary, that you have to make it somehow extraordinary. It's just this act of paying attention that makes it extraordinary. And I wanna say one little thing here about um, the practice of paying attention and just one little thing that I've found incredibly useful in my own life in terms of caring, of using life as a practice in this way. And that's the practice of keeping a journal, whether it's a written journal where you just scribble down things. I call it putting things into the basket. And often I just go through and I put in something from each one of my senses. What did I see today? What did I hear? What did I smell? What did I taste? What did I feel in my body? Doesn't have to be a lot, but just collecting these things. And I used to think, well, I was collecting all these things so I would use them later and then I would have this vast storehouse, and somehow, sometime, I would go back into the journal and pull out these things and use them all. And at a certain point, I realized, no, that's not what it's about. It's about developing that muscle of paying attention. And it can be an art journal, too, just sketching down something that you've seen, a little image, a little color, a little piece of something, something so random. You may use it. You may put it into something someday. I realized at a certain point, I can't even read most of my old journals. <laughs> you know, I go back, I have piles of them. I look, there's things I wrote in the middle of the night, felt really important. And I'm looking at it thinking, hmm, <laughs> I have no idea what that says. And yet the keeping of the journal was really important. This is William Stafford, a poem, What's in My Journal? He says, odd things like a button drawer. Mean things, fish hooks, barbs in your hand, but marbles too. A genius for being agreeable. Junkyard crucifixes, voluptuous discards, space for knickknacks and from Alaska. Clues that lead nowhere that never connected anyway. Pages you know exist, but you can't find them. Someone's terribly inevitable life story, maybe mine. So keep a journal. One more quote about journaling from David Sedaris, who's kept a journal every day since uh, September 5th, 1977. And he writes this. Even what I'm recording is of no consequence. I've got to put it down on paper. I think that what you have is a disorder, my partner Hugh likes to say. But who proves invaluable when he wants the name of that restaurant in Barcelona that served the Camembert ice cream? The brand of soap his mother likes. Of course, the diary helps me as well. That certainly wasn't your position on July 7th, 1991. I'll remind you an hour after we've had a fight. I'd have loved to rebut him earlier, but it takes a while to look these things up. The diary also comes in handy with my family, though there it plays the same role as a long-lost photograph. Remember that time in Greece when I fell asleep on the bus and you coated my eyelids with toothpaste? I'll say to my brother, Paul, to heavy pot smokers, reminders like these are a revelation. Wait a minute, we went to Greece? (laughs) So keep a journal. And keep your body in it. Keep the body of the world in it. So the second foundation of mindfulness, the second area that we can pay attention that the Buddha talked about is what's called the realm of feeling tones. And in the classical practice, what this mainly refers to is these basic feeling tones of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Things we like, things we don't like things that we don't even notice because they go right by. So how is this relevant to our life as artists? First of all, I would say that one of the things we cultivate in this realm through our meditation practice, through our yoga practice, is the ability to be with what's pleasant and really take it in without getting tangled and ensnared in it and also to be able to be with what's unpleasant without turning away. And those are both really important in our art, especially this aspect of being able to turn toward what's difficult. You know, because we know we don't put in our stories just the comfortable things. We don't put in our art just the pretty things. And of course, it's wonderful to celebrate the joys of life through our art. That's a beautiful thing that we do. You can paint flowers, gorgeous flowers, all day long. And if there comes this moment that something else is wanting to come into the painting, something's wanting to crawl across that surface of that flower that's not so pretty, what you've cultivated through your art, through your practice, is the ability to make room for it to let it be there, to let it come forward, to let it reveal itself and reveal something to you and to reveal something to others. So we have this capacity in our life to turn toward and include suffering. We don't have to run from it. And we can train that up, say, in the yoga. You know, can I be with this cranky hip? It's not about forcing my way in, but can I hang out there long enough to hear what it has to say, to bring it some relief, to not flinch away from it? Can I be with the difficult aspect of the story that's wanting to come through me so that it can pour through, so that it can make its way onto, um, onto the page and through moving through that, reveal something? These things have their own own teachings, and if we're afraid to spend time with them, sometimes we cheat ourselves as artists. And then, of course, there's the neutral, the things that we don't notice at all until we put on those artist glasses and start to look. We start to realize that stories are everywhere. I remember years ago, I took a improv class with a wonderful improv teacher named Nina Wise. And she would have us come in and tell stories just from things that happened that day. You know, don't bother looking for the biggest, most dramatic events of your life. What happened that day? And you'd think, nothing happened today. You know, I stayed home. I did the dishes. You know, I took a shower. I answered some emails. That was my day. Where's the story? But when you look, when you started paying attention, when you went into it, suddenly things begin to unfold. They begin to spiral things of beauty, things of fear, things of sorrow. So we're training up those eyes. This is a poem um, called Between Walls by William Carlos Williams. In the back wings of the hospital, where nothing will grow, lie cinders in which shine the broken pieces of a green bottle. So I don't know if you know that William Carlos Williams was a uh, physician. And so he wrote his poems on, um, on prescription pads in between seeing patients. And so they were very short. And you can just see this. This is this moment where his eyes were open, he was out behind the hospital, and he saw that sparkle, which is both a thing in itself and also a metaphor for how it is to be an artist. We see the gleam amid the broken cinders. We see that gleam where nothing will grow, and yet there is something beautiful. And when we're not afraid, we can actually see that the the tragic, the heartbreaking, and the beautiful are woven together, they're braided together in our life. And so in the middle of these dark moments are these moments of illumination. In the middle of the heartbreak can be the joy. And there can be beauty found anywhere and beauty brought to anything. Last year I went to an exhibit out at Alcatraz by the the Chinese dissident artist Ai Weiwei. And he is an artist in China who was imprisoned um, for, his, for speaking out against the government. And he was still on, I don't know if he was on house arrest, but he didn't have his passport, he hadn't been given his passport. So he wasn't even able to come to set up the installation. He had to give the directions by Skype and phone so that other people could put his work up there according to his vision. And the first thing you saw when you walked into this uh, installation on Alcatraz, which is the site of a former prison, maximum security prison, is in this old abandoned cell block. There was a paper, there was an enormous kite made of these huge paper dragons that just wound all the way through these old cells. And paper was bright red and gold and crimson. And on all of the written on the wings of the dragon were quotes from various dissidents. There was one um, from Ai Weiwei himself, which was, every one of us is a potential convict. In other parts of the installation, he piped in, for instance, Hopi chants into the, what had been the former psych ward at Alcatraz, and this is in memory of the many Native Americans who had been imprisoned there. Also, in the psych ward, there was an exhibit um, in the old toilets of these beautiful ceramic flowers that he had placed there. So, this is just an example of being willing to see the beauty and bring the beauty to the darkest places of our life. And this is something that we train up through this basic practice this practice of being to include what's difficult include what's joyous, and see what may be invisible to the untrained or unawake eye. So the third area, again, going back to these classic teachings, the third area where classically we can practice this ability to be awake is in the realm of the mind, the heart and the mind the emotional states, the thoughts that move through, the contents of our heart and mind, and then also the basic attitudes and moods. Is the mind contracted? Is it open? Is it uplifted? Is it heavy? So this, too, is the terrain of our exploration of artists. And you can feel it as you move through the retreat. You may already be starting to feel it, that as we start to tell our stories, as we start to put our images down on paper, as the images start to arise like dreams within us and then pour out through color and shape, there's an emotional content that starts to move. There is this aliveness of the emotions. And there can be this myth about meditation that the goal of our meditation practice is to make these things go away. But as you know, if you've begun to practice, really it's, it's about something quite different, which is coming into a relationship with our emotional life, with the life of our minds that's wise, that's skillful, where we can allow what's there to move through and know it for what it is. And in the case of us as artists, allow it to infuse our story. So there's a quote here. This is from a Tantric Buddhist text. Flowers like the blue lotus, the red lotus, the white lotus, do not grow on the ground in the wilderness, but do grow in the swamps and mud banks, just so the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passion. So through our art we swim around sometimes in those swamps and mudbanks. Have you noticed that? Have you maybe rolled in one today? And again it's that quality of not being afraid, of being able to um, to open to what wants to move through us and receive it. And let it be known, let it be expressed. And when we turn toward this again with this attitude of, uh, of using everything as grist for the mill, it's grist for the artistic mill, but there's a way in which our heart gets tenderized so that as we become less afraid of our own emotional life, as we have some kind of channel for working with it, When we're holding this in the context of art as an awakening practice, it also tenderizes us toward the hearts of others. You know, we explore our own humanity, and as we do, we start to get, oh, other people feel like this too. I'm not the only one. And then also we can come to understand sometimes our own life and our own story, whether we're working with fictional characters, or characters in our own life, or characters who were painting on the page. People who were two-dimensional to us, maybe cast in a particular role in our life, we begin to see the nuances. So maybe there's this character in a story who begins as a villain, but in order for them to come alive, you have to understand, in order for them to come alive, you have to understand their point of view. You may able, even have to write out the entire book from their point of view in order to be able to, to understand it from the point of view of who you thought was the main character. Or you may have to come to understand people in your past who you held in a certain way, but you realize when you painted them on the page that wasn't all of who they are. So another poem here to read. This is from... Tony Hoagland, let me find this here, it's called Phone Call. Maybe I overdid it when I called my father an enemy of humanity. That might have been a little strongly put, a slight over-exaggeration, an immoderate description of the person who at the moment, 2,000 miles away, holding the telephone receiver six inches from his ear, must have regretted paying for my therapy. (laughs) What I meant was that my father was an enemy of my humanity, and what I meant behind that was that my father was split into two people, one of them living deep inside of me, like a bad king or an incurable disease, blighting my crops, striking down my herds, poisoning my wells, the other standing in another time zone in a kitchen in Wyoming with bad knees and white hair sprouting from his ears. I don't want to scream forever. I don't want to live without proportion like some kind of infection from the past. So I have to remember the second father, the one whose TV dinner is getting cold Well, he holds the phone in his left hand and stares blankly out the window, where just now the sun is going down, and the last fingertips of sunlight are withdrawing from the hills they once touched like a child. So you can see, and I like to imagine that that understanding happened for him not just through his years of father-paid-for therapy, but through his exploration as an artist, and that maybe his father showed up, I don't know this, I'm making this up, in all kinds of incarnations and all kinds of poems before that insight arised of the complexity of this human being who perhaps was less dimensional when he began his journey. So that's another kind of gift that our art can give us, this kind of making sense of the world And this starts to move now into the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which there are many ways of talking about, but one way of talking about it is that we're looking at the patterns of thought and mind and living. We're looking deeply at the structures of the way the world works and how our minds interact with that, and we're seeing what causes suffering and what doesn't. We're starting to cut through our entranced state, our belief in the stories that are being told in our mind and drop into something deeper so that we have some freedom around the way we look at the world. We're moving out of stories, for instance, that I can't paint or I can't write. We're moving out of stories of judgment, of fear, of contraction, of doubt. We're moving out of that uh, entrancement that I have to get what I want or I can't be happy. Through our art, we're starting to tune to a deeper current. We're being able to listen to a deeper current and follow it where it goes. William Stafford calls it the golden thread that weaves through our life. And you can pick it up anywhere in any moment and start to follow it. And one of the trances that we start to break through is the belief that things are permanent. That we're permanent, that we have a solid self that will be here forever. That the story we're writing is permanent. That our painting will last forever. We're starting to open to an understanding of the creative process and of life as a kind of flow, and that we're moving in this current, and things are always changing. And that if we cultivate that through our art, we can begin to practice it a little more in our life as well. A poem here I'm thinking of. Kay Ryan, who used to be the Poet Laureate here in Marin, Poet Laureate of Marin. The Niagara River. As though the river were a floor, we position our table and chairs on it. We eat, we have conversation. As it moves along, we notice, as calmly as though dining room paintings were being replaced, the changing scenes along the shore. We do know, we do know, that this is the Niagara River, but it is hard to remember what that means. So we start to notice what the Niagara River is and where it eventually goes in our art, in our life. And we start to feel a kind of ease, a familiarity with this, a kind of joy in the dance. And as we pay attention, it becomes something that we can surrender into and that brings us Freedom in our art. Freedom as we're putting the painting on the the paint on the page, the words on the paper. It's a sense of the fluidity of life, of the river, of the current. And we start to awaken and value and honor our voice in the mix. We start to have faith that our voice is one of the currents. In this great dance and this great river dance. I recently went and saw uh, the new movie with Meryl Streep, Florence Foster Jenkins, uh, which is about a, uh, a woman who wanted to sing opera and had not, um, how to put this, um, her training hadn't taken her quite to the heights that she thought that it had yet, and yet she performed, she sang, And she got up there on stage and uh, belted out the songs with a kind of bravery and uh, trust in her own voice that had an impact. It didn't always have the impact that she thought it would, but it had an impact. Mm -hmm. And there's this beautiful moment in the movie at least, I don't know how true to life this is. It's at the very end of the movie where she's on her deathbed, and she says to her husband, well, they might be able to say that I couldn't sing, but they can't say that I didn't sing. (laughs) So as we enter into this journey, we're celebrating this. No one will be able to say about any of us here that we didn't paint, that we didn't write, that we didn't express, that we didn't take that leap And that journey is what matters. That journey is what matters. It's the exciting part. You know, there's this moment when we're done with something and we think, wow, it's done. But pay attention to what happens next. Our attention starts to turn to the next thing. What's coming next? What's the next image? What's the next song? We're moving forward, we're part of this flow. And by surrendering to this flow and paying attention to our lives in this way, something really miraculous begins to happen. And this week we'll all get to discover what it is for us. So let's just sit in silence for a moment here. as you sit. Just notice this river of life running through you. What are you feeling in your body? In this field of aliveness, ever-changing, ever-pulsing, that we call body. Notice the sounds and the play of light and color. And the air on the skin. The connection with the earth. Notice that some aspects of your experience right now may be pleasant, full of ease. And some may more be more difficult. Even painful. Some may just be little whispers at the edge of your experience. Notice the flow of your emotions and moods. That what's here now may be different from what was here an hour ago, two hours ago. Knowing that it will change again Notice the sparkle of thoughts, images, coming and going. And the space that all of that's held in. Opening to this river of aliveness moving through you and as you. Notice its inherent creative power. The effortlessness with which the breath rolls in and rolls out. the way your heart beats without your having to make it happen. have just a few minutes now before dinner. Enjoy your meal and be back with your painting and writing at 7 o'clock this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate